Do you like the feeling of power you have as a newspaper proprietor of being able to sort of formulate policies for a large number of newspapers in every state of Australia? Well, there's only one honest answer to that, of course, and that's yes. Of course one enjoys the feeling of power. The newspaper can create great controversies, stir up uh, arguments within the community, discussion, it can throw light on injustices, just as it can do the opposite. It can hide things uh, and be a great power for evil. It's not a perfect system, obviously, but can you think of a better one? Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Murdocracy, a podcast that keeps an eye on the news and influence of News Corp, the most influential media company in the Western world. I'm Cam Wilson. And I'm Sammy Shaw. Sammy, what comes up when someone Googles your name? Oh, um, well, hopefully my website or my Wikipedia <laughs> or something. There's a lot of like things that articles written about me from people I pissed off over the years. Oh, yeah. So I'm sure some of those come up as well. And then there was briefly a columnist in Pakistan also named Sami Shah oh. um, and, a, you know, and a, a, a journalist and writing columns in Pakistan for the same newspaper I used to once write for. <gasps> and so his columns sometimes come up. And then poor guy apparently gets like death threats and abuse that's directed at me and he gets very confused as to why people hate him so much and I have to tell him no 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 they hate me not you you're fine <laughs> <laughs> well look you know if, if you're getting death threats at least you can kind of spread them out over two people that, that's yeah handy. that's what I figure it's uh, good to share that around are you more famous than the other Sammy Shah for now for now oh for I, now I, I, I can't say I think famous and notorious are two um applicable adjectives <laughs> yes all press is good press mm. um actually speaking of website I um I recently nabbed uh wilson.cam that's my mm-hmm. personal one but mm-hmm. also this week um the Australian uh uh domain registrar or the one that's in charge of all of them released a new uh uh Australian domain ending that can just end in .au rather than .com.au so mm-hmm. i have registered but i but it, it, there's like a 6 month waiting period to see if anyone objects uh, cam.au so i'm really really hoping Ooh, that i get cam.au that. is a good one i know it would be really good really good so um but yeah no um i, I um when i search myself and and the, the relevance will come mm-hmm. up soon um it's funny that you mentioned that there's another sammy shah who works the same publication there was another cameron wilson who used to work for the abc and he apparently was a he was, i think he reported for like the bush telegraph which was like a really a, a, a radio um uh, program on on the on, abc on yeah ABC. and all the time i would get just super lovely emails saying great to see you still going and love your work definitely not for me so i <laughs> i actually got to to ride on his coattails which which yes. was which was lovely no death threats all good things and so i, I highly recommend that if you can get the the uh the, the chance to to be named after someone else who's mm-hmm. well respected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm definitely going to rename myself Stephen Fry or Dalai <laughs> Lama or something along those lines. Oh, I think the Dalai Lama might stick around. <laughs> Isn't that how it works? <laughs> okay, hey, so for this um, episode, a little bit later on, I'll be chatting to Steve Mascord. He is the author of a new book about the birth of the NRL. I cornered him to chat about the relationship between the rugby league competition and News Corp. Some pretty interesting stuff, including some uh, pretty uh, uh, big big fights, and and not only how News Corp shaped the NRL, but also how NRL shaped News Corp. So it's very very interesting. But Sammy, I also know that you have something you want to promote. 
I do indeed. Uh, thank you very much, Cam. Um, I am doing a run of shows, uh, comedy shows at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, the Sydney Comedy Festival, and the Perth Comedy Festival. The show is called Unappreciated, um, which basically speaks to my deep-seated insecurities. And it is about the fact that I've been in Australia for 10 years this year. It's been a bizarre journey so far, and I'm kind of looking back on the lessons I've learned over those 10 years. Um, I'm doing the entire Melbourne Comedy Festival, so the 31st of March to the 24th of April at the Chinese Museum. Um, I've got a show over there, which is very strange because I'm performing amongst Ming vases and jade sculptures. Oh, that um, sounds cool. It's really cool. It'll definitely be the first five minutes of every night will be me talking about that. <laughs> and... Um, so that's on. Uh, and then um, in Sydney, I'm there for two days in May and then one day in Perth. So far, one day. If we sell out the 300-seat uh, theatre, then um, we'll add another day as well. So hopefully that can happen. Right, yeah. And, oh, and, yeah. and tickets and, available on uh, thesamisha.com or on uh, the Comedy Festival websites. Oh, cool. And is there any, like, if someone is not in Melbourne who's listening to this podcast, is there any other way, like, can you stream it or will you be putting up a version of it later on? So I will be putting up the audio from the festival show um, on my Patreon. That's patreon.com slash samisha for all of my subscribers. And then eventually later in the year, I'll try to release it as a comedy album or or a YouTube video, a YouTube special or something like that. So that there's definitely going to be that down the line. But, uh, you know, that's not for a while still. And no- nothing beats being there in person. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the live experience is just a whole other thing. Even for me, like, I love comedy and stand-up comedy. I go to as many live comedy shows as possible because it's just so much fun. I'm going to go watch Ronnie Cheng tomorrow because I love Ronnie's comedy. But, you know, and, and it would be so much better to watch it in person. That sounds really, really great. I'm, uh, I'm jealous. In fact, you know, even just going back to the cinema for the first time um, mm. since, uh, since COVID. What did saw- you watch? <laughs> You're gonna laugh at me. <laughs> I went and saw the new Jackass film. Of course uh, you did. Uh, uh, on my on my honeymoon in Byron Bay. On your honeymoon? <laughs> yeah, because my my wife's into it as well. Totally. Cool. And All right. It, okay. It, it was. <laughs> Awesome. It was just like the perfect because you know it yeah. mixes the like the gross with the like cringe and the the you know you're scared for their lives. That's like the perfect thing to see in an audience after you haven't been in a big crowd close with them, you know, laughing, crying in in so long. So, uh, oh, that was a great experience. But yeah, I would um, yeah. I, so I I totally totally you know I'm all about the live experience now, and I'm not. I don't think you're gonna be up there, Sammy, but I would highly recommend anyone who is gonna be around to check it out. Yes. All right, cool. I will come to Sydney for my Sydney Comedy Festival shows and that's when we oh. can finally hopefully meet oh, up as well. yeah, 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 totally. So for the News Corp News of the Week, um, I was scrolling through Twitter last night when I saw this tweet from the Judith Neil- Nielsen Institute, which is a philanthropic organization that's been putting money into journalism for a couple of years now. And mm-hmm. it was quoting Christopher Dore, who is the editor-in-chief of The Australian, uh, later, I would find out that he was the first speaker at a new lecture series they're doing called The Editors. And he was saying that there is an irrational and pious obsession with tearing down News Corp journalism. According to reporting by Amanda Mead, the Australian's editor, he rallied against Twitter. He said that some journalists were so vain, self-obsessed, craving, indulgent and needy that they were undermining their profession and they should stick to reporting and not give their opinion. 
That's he cool. Wrote... You shouldn't say that about um, Andrew <laughs> Bolt and Rita Panahi and Rowan Dean and, and Piers Morgan. That's, that's, uh, you know, well, they work for the same people. It's very awkward for him in the workplace. Yeah, and at one point he even Googled <laughs> his name and the Australian on stage and went through critical things that people were saying uh, of them. He said that there were a cohort of senior journalists who prey on others uh, actively, almost reflexively mocking, ridiculing, and actively undermining the work of s- some quite courageous journalists who believe they do not conform. Uh, Sammy, I thought the kind of same thing as you. Does this not sound a little bit like he was talking about some of the same people under his roof uh, m- just as much as he was talking about other people? Yeah, it's very much physician heal thyself. Like it's it's <laughs> very strange for him to be talking about irrational and pious obsession with tearing down anything, given that he works for News Corp and their irrational pious obsession with tearing down anything on the opposite side of the political and social political aisle. Like it's very strange. But and also Googling yourself on stage is the most crass thing you could have done. Look, you're in the public eye. The way we work as journalists now is journalists are not just representative of the newspaper or organization they work for, but also their own brand. That's the way Twitter and everything works. And so criticism comes everyone's way. And you can't work for an organization that is so, you know, famously questionable in some of their journalistic choices and then expect people to not to have an opinion. But also people have an opinion on everything. If you if you Google Bluey right now on Twitter, there'll be people who hate Bluey for some reason. No one loves everything um, uh, universally and everyone has an opinion on everything. So why is he acting like this is such a rare experience for News Corp journalists? ABC journalists cop the same amount of abuse all the time. First of all, I take an issue with the fact that there's anyone out there who hates Bluey. Uh, it is like universally beloved. <laughs> I don't know if you saw it. So Disney Plus, sorry, this is such a, a digression, mm. but Disney Plus for the first time, I think, included them as part of their, their viewing numbers. And it was yes. the seventh most sh- watched show, I think with like 300 million views in the last month. Something crazy. Like mm-hmm. arguably it's one of Australia's biggest cultural exports. Uh, that aside, it's it, the fact that you mentioned the ABC is so right because the way that News Corp reports on the ABC is exactly as they kind of, as exactly as Christopher Dorr explained. And and the idea to be so thin-skinned while doing that as well, just, oh my God, it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of breathtaking. And, and of course, he must be conscious of it. But look, I mean, yeah, look, I mean, journalists, you know, generally take a lot of criticism and I can understand how anyone would feel that way. But to to really direct that elsewhere is, is, is I, I mean, I would say tone deaf, but I think they know exactly what they're doing. The other interesting thing, I think, is that, so this Judith Nielsen Institute mm. is uh, has been set up in the last few years, still very new, and it has been doing, um, it's been splashing money into journalism. And so as a result, you know, people, you know, in the industry, particularly an industry that isn't uh, one that's, you know, exactly flush with cash at the best of times, um, not a lot of people uh, want to actually like critique them and and maybe Mm -hmm. saying this is going to get me in a little bit of trouble and if you're uh listening judith nielsen or anyone associated with it um this is a you know a fair critique and shows my journalistic chops and that's why you should be giving me a whole boatload of money but the thing (laughs) the thing that i've noticed is that they have really decided to support 
uh, a real like centrist version of journalism and 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 really you know say that they you know that we're for like you know promoting innovative and exciting journalism but i've just really ended up a lot of the time funneling money to already the biggest names particularly like news corp like you know mm-hmm. they paid all this money um oh sorry i should say they sponsored in assuming that means that there's a lot of money going to news.com.au now that's news corps you know big commercial uh, website it's the second most visited in the country it's the biggest commercial one and they supported them to do a climate change fact checking uh, series last year and to me that just struck me as absolutely insane because you had you know the australian which had been peddling you know misinformation about climate change this was 6 months after um, the bushfires, when you know they had been saying that we could link the increase in fires to like arsons and not actually climate change, and then another arm of the company is getting philanthropic money to then run a series debunking the same things that the other arm of the company had kind of promoted in the first place. Is that what so I'm saying? Are you are you telling me that a, a filthy, massively grotesquely rich person has set up an organization that really um, benefits uh, News Corp, which is quite famously quite um not say sensitive if not sensitive uh biased towards the plight of the rich and the wealthy <laughs> uh yeah am i saying there might be a bit of uh uh class solidarity in action mm-hmm. i mean maybe i mean you know they also and this is getting sown to the weeds but like there was another thing where they were hosting an event where they hosted um, I think it was, or they, no, so they announced that they were sponsoring Quillette, which for most yes. people, you probably wouldn't know it, but this is a publication that really, it, like, is, it's not just that it's right wing, but has, like, has, has platformed some pretty gross views, including, you know, some, like, people who've talked about, uh, you know, what they like to call race science, which is, yes. you know, usually, like, arguing that non-white people aren't as smart as white people. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, even kind and of genetically getting... Genetically inferior. Exactly. Like, yeah, you right. know, that kind of stuff. Like, you know, they are really this kind of fringe online publication, very contrarian. They're, they're, they are actually founded in Australia, but they, I think most of their audience would be overseas. But they had gotten money from this. And I just, like, you know, not a lot of people, I think, are, want to actually say what are you guys doing? Because everyone would rather just, you know, kind of bite their tongue and say, if there's money coming my way, I'd I'd rather Mm. put myself in a good position for it. But it is funny that, you know, when they are like, well, you know, we want to make sure that journalism is sustainable, is doing good work. And the first one that they get in the first series of their, their editors is the head of the Australian. And he uses that to, to, you know, essentially rail against the fact that people Mm -hmm. are too woke. Is that really having the intended result? I'm not so sure. Look, it's their money. They're going to spend it how they want to spend it. And we can judge them for how they spend it. And that's literally all we can do because they've got a <laughs> ton of money and we don't. <laughs> Here's the thing. If the Judith Nielsen Institute really wants to show that they care about quality journalism and the improvement of the journalism um, that is conducted in Australia overall, they should give at least a million dollars to Murdocracy, the podcast, through our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Murdocracy. And then we will be take a more unbiased view of their opinions. Here, here. I think that would only be fair to have balance <laughs> exactly exactly uh, so i was reading an, an interesting story about how the nrl is set to allow melbourne storm players so that's a place for a team to invest mm. in an online betting company owned by their chairman a guy called matt trip and and news corp um and this was reported by the sydney morning herald chief sports writer andrew webster when i spotted this line news corp is desperate for a place in the australian wagering market following the success of fox bet in the u.s and is only weeks away from partnering with Trip, who is eyeing off potential investors. 
Now, I know we've mentioned sports betting before, but I assume it's really only a matter of time until News Corp gets what they want and figures out something to do in Australia. But I want to ask you, Sammy, have you noticed just how much advertising there is for gambling now in Australia? We actually, in one of my classes at university, were discussing this because we were talking about advertising on news websites and how that sometimes that you know raises questions about the ethics of the news and, and the relationship between advertisers and news. And one of my students... Uh, to you know, make uh, prove his point, opened up the uh, several Australian news websites, and I obviously, if anyone knows me, they know I haven't been to an Australian sports news website ever in my life. I have no <laughs> idea what sports even is most of the time, and um, I was shocked, genuinely, truly shocked by the level of advertising for gambling on those websites. Australian sports news websites aren't sports news websites. They're gambling websites with a little bit of sports news thrown in on the side. It feels like when you look at the kind of branding around everything. It is incredible how much advertising you see on um, sporting websites and, and, and clearly there's so much money in it. The other interesting place that I really see it kind of sneaking into is where you see betting in things like politics stories, when we say preferred prime minister, here are the odds, or sometimes when a news event happens and people will be like, well, here's the event, like, you know, here's the odds for someone to become the next host of 7.30. And um, I kind of always say that, like, you know, I think sometimes people give too much credit to, like, uh, gambling lines as if people know something that they don't, whereas often, like, you know, they really really don't. You know, people are just kind of going, "Mm," for the most of the time, off the same information that that um that we all have and and i think it is it's kind of insidious you know like i i i don't really want to have that stuff in all my politics i don't really want everything just to be commercialized but the the the, the one thing i did find out about those kind of news uh and politics and and you know sometimes when they've got betting on something like the bachelor or another reality mm-hmm. tv show is that they know that those are actually loss leaders and very often they'll actually set up you know, bets with like, you know, something that seems like, oh, you know, right now there would be like, I'll give a dollar 10 to Peter Dutton to be the next um, leader of the Liberal Party. Uh, and, and, you know, some maybe a small amount for Josh Frydenberg as well. And the purpose is because they're not actually thinking they're going to make money off it, but by getting big events where they think they can lure in people to, to bet, well, then you've kind of got them to create a betting account. And that's the biggest hurdle. Like you've already got them into the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And that's like one of the smart things that they're doing to try and to get people used to it. And to me, it kind of grosses me out. Yeah, I think, look, it is, there's nothing that about the way Australia has a relationship with betting, particularly sports betting, but overall gambling. Um that is not disgusting. I don't understand why it's so accepted. I don't know. The arguments that are always put forward to me is, you know, and, and even when I was at the ABC, senior journalists or, you know, listeners on the radio would always say, oh, you know, look at how much money it brings in. Where else can we get that kind of money? I mean, if that's the only, you know, moral uh, quality we have in terms of if it brings in money, then let's do it. Then fuck it. Let's bring back slavery and also human trafficking <laughs> should be legal. And why not ha- allow some cocaine production on Australia's state shows as well? We'll make tons of money from it. We'll do great. The economy will benefit for sure. Lots of jobs are to be had. Uh-huh. I don't understand why gambling is just seen as a, a necessary evil because of the money it provides. And we can see the detrimental effects it has on sports, on society, on mental health, on so many different things. 
Yeah, I mean, I feel the same way about something like pokies where, like, you know, I know people argue, oh, it's a bit of fun and, you know, people most of the time are okay. But the the upside is so is so little. Like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. if it is just entertainment, well, there's plenty of ways you can be entertained. But the downside, what it does to families, what it does to yeah. people who are really, you know, addicted or, or, or out of control. Um, and, yeah, it's very, very sad. So, no, I, I yeah, I struggle with that. I'm, I'm kind of mm-hmm. like, you know, I like to think I'm – a bit like socially liberal and people can do whatever, but I, I do find it um, not, I don't know if I could, you know, pull the trigger and, and, right. and make it more legal. So I genuinely think it's the kind of thing which if maybe in a generation or so, we look at back at the gambling stuff in sports even and can treat it the same way we did smoking. We were like, can you believe people used to smoke everywhere? We'd be like, can you believe there were pokies everywhere and you could just bet on every game publicly and that was legally allowed? I hope so. Yeah. Hey, speaking of things that I, I think we'll pack on and, and shake our heads. Um, So there was a Jewish group that's called for an end to careless public Nazi comparisons after a News Corp columnist likened Queensland public servants to German wartime propagandist Joseph Goebbels. Uh, Peter Gleason, the Courier Mail, also, by the way, a host of Sky News Australia, uh, he mm-hmm. wrote SEQ Water, which is, I think, Southeast Queensland Water uh, Public Utility, continues to trot out the line that I did that they did everything right during the latest floods with the release of water from the Ho Dam. It was following the manual, it says, that was just German propaganda, Joseph Goebbels' favorite line. That was what he said. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond the obvious issue, of course, of, of you know, comparing uh, public servants to, to Nazis, it also wasn't actually Goebbels, but it was uh, Adolf Eichmann who was yes, later found exactly. guilty of war crimes too. So, you know, really, really just wrong on, on, on all accounts. And also the wording wasn't it was following the manual. The wording was um, just following orders. I mean, mm. there's a lot, basically... Um, one of the things that Peter Gleason has shown is that even basic research is beyond him. Just the <laughs> arrogance involved in writing a column, not taking a second to do any research. The Jewish group that, that's going to condemn this is the Anti-Defamation Commission, which is chaired by Dr. Devere Abramovich. I've met Devere several times. Mm. I interviewed him for my documentary. Mm. Look, sometimes he makes the, uh, decisions that I think are questionable. He's, you know, he's, for example, gone after Nazim Hussain once because Nazim Hussain made a joke on stage, which included every religious group, including Jews. Um, and he said that Nazim is anti-Semitic. And then there's another time when they kind of campaigned against the game Secret Hitler, saying that it's promoting Hitler, even though the point of the game was that you never know who amongst you could have fascist tendencies. And it's a good way of like, mm. you know, understanding that about society. Oh, so I, I think sometimes they're a bit... Uh, quick on the trigger i think in this case there is a validity to the argument is that you know we then we have made uh, so light of the nazi references and everything's a nazi and everyone's a nazi um and and you know all sides of politics kind of play this game sometimes where it's the um godwin's law but in not <laughs> the internet but in real life now um that we're not even bothering to fact check anymore we're just throwing names like joseph goebbels and and everything around um i think if anything they should have said the complaint should have been at least get your facts right if you're going <laughs> to quote uh, you know a um, a nazi uh, leader then at least make sure you're getting the right one so it shows that you have an understanding of what you're talking about yeah it, it also doesn't say much about your worldview that something that's i mean you know important to some people but is not on the scale of that making that comparison mm. is pretty gross your life must be going pretty well if that's the biggest thing you got going on uh, and the other thing is and this is me really you know on being a, a journalist sociopath but i'm just saying mm. 
God, can't we just come up with something more interesting to say? You're a columnist, you know. Yeah. Your job is to yeah. be to argue and 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 introduce interesting ideas, and just you know, comparing someone you don't like to Nazis is um, it's pretty it's pretty done. I'm over it. It it you know what you know what really exhausted the Nazi thing was when the anti-vaxxers were complaining that the um vaccine mandate was equivalent in 1930s Germany. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. and I was like, okay, all right, we're done. You know, at this point, the, the even the Nazi comparison have jumped the shark. But now I think I I said that too soon because comparing it to uh, Seq Water continuing to trot out quote unquote trot out the line that they did everything the latest floods and comparing that to Goebbels um is is clearly the jump jumping of the shark moment. And and, and but and just a little thing because this is really my area of expertise. Uh, uh, you know, having done a lot of anti vaxxers um, mm. also Adolf Hitler. Uh, notoriously uh, was actually in opposition to vaccine mandates. So, you yep. know, the, the anti-vaxxers, <laughs> as a, along with Peter Gleason, not to uh, crash hot on their history. Yeah, it turns out. And finally, Sammy, are you in the market for some property? Always. Do you know anything that you're going for three, <laughs> three to $400? Because that's my budget. Uh, well, you know, if you can scrounge a, a couple extra more, I, I do know there is someone who's looking to sell. Uh, that is 91-year-old billionaire Rupert Murdoch. He's Ooh. looking to sell two of his midtown Manhattan condos for $78 million US, according to real estate listings uh, written by business insiders Ben Gilbert. Mm. Uh, Murdoch purchased the properties in 2014. He reportedly paid about $57.25 million. Uh, so if he sells it for his asking price, he stands to make shy of $21 million on the sale. Uh, pretty nice, huh? I mean, look, here's what I'm going to say. If the Judith Nielsen Institute gives us millions of dollars to show that the Judith Nielsen Institute is genuinely in favor of journalism, then we can use those millions of dollars to purchase Rupert Murdoch's Manhattan condos. Oh. At least one of them. Not the same, Maybe not two. I don't want to get greedy. But let's say we buy one of them and turn that into our podcasting headquarters. Wouldn't we don't even have to go there. I mean... I don't know. It's it's a clearly a way of him showing that he's unbiased as well. He gives it to us at a discount That's price. True. You know, That's true. like so. There's a lot of there's a lot of uh, things that have to work out in our favor for this to happen. But I'm a dreamer. I really am, and I feel like I I deserve. We Cam, we deserve a seventy eight million dollar Manhattan condo. <laughs> and as such close studies of his work, his life, his his uh, his empire. Yeah, um, sure. We handing it down. It's practically like handing it down in the family. Exactly. I mean, by the way, you can look at a picture of the of the condo if you look at if you, if you Google. Um, I think it's called uh, one. The building is called One Madison in Manhattan's Ooh. Flatiron District, and um, basically the penthouse, which is what he has, uh, is three stories, and there's like. It's an apartment Ooh, that's that, three floors. I'm looking at now with wall to ceiling <laughs> windows and a stair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but not much privacy, you know so you know what? No, not for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, that's it. You're right. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Good point. All right. We can, <laughs> never mind. We cancel the order. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and now I'm joined by Steve Mascord, who is the author of Two Tribes, The Untold Story of Rugby League's Divided Year, uh, which is all about uh, 1997 and all the lead up to it. Uh, Steve, welcome. Hey, Cam, how are you, mate? Uh, Very good evening well. to you. Yeah. Good evening to you. It's morning where I am. Yeah, you're speaking to us from the UK. Whereabouts? I'm in London. I'm in okay. London. 
Beautiful, beautiful. Now, you just said this book came out. It caught my eye because I, I started to find out a little bit about News Corp's relationship with the NRL. But first of all, take us to where things were in 1997. Where was rugby in Australia? Well, um, rugby league, initially, I, I always say rugby league is a as a breakaway from rugby union, the seeds of discontent uh, are always in the garden of rugby league. <laughs> but uh, in... Um, in 1994-95, Rupert Murdoch came along with a big watering can because um, pay television was being introduced to Australia. Uh, he wanted uh, rugby league as a, as a bulwark there, uh, as he had used the NFL in the US and Premier League here in the UK. Um, rugby league uh, was already had already sold its pay TV rights, uh, basically sold them to Kerry Packer to do nothing, to warehouse them for a million dollars. So um, what happened was, and, and News had a very, very strong relationship with the establishment of Rugby League. Obviously, Rugby League sells a lot of newspapers, a lot of tabloid newspapers in New South Wales for, for Murdoch. Um, and the merchandising arm uh, for of uh, the New South Wales Rugby League and then, and then it became the Australian Rugby League, uh, was run by News Limited, uh, so a very, very tight relationship. I remember as a reporter, it was difficult getting an exclusive out of Phillips Street because a lot of, they would all go to uh, to Holt Street. Uh, oh. So, uh, but uh, because of this um, um, a corporate battle, uh, basically, uh, News uh, soon put themselves in an adversarial position. Uh, with the uh, Australian Rugby League and started up their own competition, uh, recruiting clubs who were unhappy with the status quo. The relationship got pretty sour at times, didn't it? Well, you don't get much more sour than starting a rival competition. There's never been two. Comp- <laughs> there's never been two competitions. Uh, you know, in in. Uh, I know we had World Series cricket, which was uh, which was exactly the shoe on the other foot, wasn't it? With uh, Packer starting uh, a competition, so they could barely they could hardly take the high moral ground in that regard. But uh, yeah, there were two competitions in 1997 and 1997 uh, only, and uh, that that was the year, well, the year before uh, News's um, uh, pay television pay television interests uh, began. And uh, yeah, we uh, so the, the relationships were very poor, but nonetheless. Uh, you know, and this is what we saw was at Kerry Packer uh, at the start of 1997 after the ARL went to war on his behalf, actually signed a deal with Super League to show Super League on Monday nights, which sort of um, uh, showed, I, I guess, you know, I've been, it's, you know, theorising with people, uh, Cam, that um, these days a contract really just dictates the number of zeros on the end of a settlement. Uh, but back then... <laughs> But back then, a contract. Uh, these were rugby league men, um, and uh, a contract was a contract, and they were willing uh, to basically put themselves in existential danger to protect their contract with Kerry Packer after he threatened to sue the pants off all of them. Uh, but he wasn't. It turns out as serious as they were, uh, and uh, Packer and Murdoch ended up doing um, making peace. So, how did the year end up setting the tone for, I guess, the following decades of NRL? Well, it formed the NRL, so the NRL didn't exist uh, before um, 1998. So uh, basically uh, the Super League competition wasn't terribly successful. 
but um, that it was very well funded, as you'd imagine, because Murdoch uh, poured by the end of the war some six hundred million dollars into it. So, um, but the uh, in Sydney, uh, people switched off the sport. If you have a look at the clippings, hmm. or if you or, or, or if you if you're if you're a Swans fan, you'll look back on nineteen. Uh, uh, 97, 96 as a, a good period where you've got a lot of back pages <laughs> and a lot of publicity uh, because uh, people in Sydney uh, switched off uh, the sport. Um, but but uh, the, the great piece of serendipity, um, you would say, for rugby league was that the only place that really still cared was Newcastle, blue-collar, working-class New South Wales, uh, Steeltown. Uh, and of all the years for them to win the competition, they won the competition that year. So uh, the ARL... Uh, managed to have some, um, basically the only people in the country who still cared uh, in their corner when when it came time to um, uh, to broker peace, uh, and the um, News Limited uh, their clubs was well funded but were losing support. Um, so uh, as a result, a peace deal was done. We lost a lot of the expansion teams, so there were no more. Uh, well, there was no Adelaide, no Gold Coast, and then the following year, no Perth, uh, no South Queensland, which is the second team in Brisbane. We're just getting that back. Now, second team in Brisbane. So basically, it ended. It pretty much killed off expansion. Everything that News Limited, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, hoisted the um, you know the spinnaker regarding uh, in expansion, internationalism. All those things took a back backward step in rugby league, and it was back to grassroots because the grassroots by the end of nineteen ninety seven were the only uh, uh, area that still cared, and we got a lot of uh, merged teams. Um, you'll notice that. Um, all the uh, all the teams that were forced to merge were ARL uh, teams because they they had no money. Um, so we had St George Illawarra, uh, uh, we had the Northern Eagles, we had West Tigers, um, but the, the likes of Canterbury, uh, Penrith, Cronulla, they benefited from siding with uh, News Corp because uh, mm. they still stand alone to this day. Wow, that's so interesting. So I guess, you know, zooming forward a couple of years, I was reading about um, how the kind of relationship went, you know, into the 2010s. And I read something saying that the NRL signed their big TV deal with Nine on quite an important day, or I guess like a noteworthy day. It was the first day that Murdoch came it was the first day of Murdoch's visit to Australia, which is like, um, seems like something that is almost like intentionally meant to inflame tensions. In, into well, well, the- well, well, the thing is because that, that was, um, you know, uh, one of the uh, former CEOs of the uh, NRL, David Smith, who was who's subsequently hunted out, but uh, you would say by pressure from uh, media partners, including uh, news and, and also some of the clubs. But, the, the thing to the most important thing to understand is from 1998, and my book finishes on um, uh, with with a few you know another chapter of bits and pieces from after there, but it finishes on December 19, um, 1997. Um, is that news were a partner in the NRL uh, for another f- sort of uh, I guess a decade. So um, news news was sitting on both sides of the table during TV negotiations. Uh, they were negotiating with themselves, and as a result. Most people in the sport feel that the the, the pay television uh, income was artificially low. Um, then, then we had the formation of the um, the uh, the ARL Commission, which was truly independent. And the what and the what you describe is the height of the uh, NRL's independence, uh, where uh, they set up their own digital arm for a sports rights apocalypse, so that they would actually sell direct. And, and strangely enough. That's what John Quayle and Ken Arbison first envisaged in the late 80s. 
that the uh, that the NRL, the then New South Wales Rugby League would have its own pay TV station as soon as the idea of pay TV first sort of floated through the door. Um, we, we ended up ended up kind of getting it uh, where uh, the NRL uh, through the ARLC had this enormous amount of independence, and then with COVID, um, we uh, we saw Channel Nine claw back. Uh, it's it's uh, it's iron grip really on the sport, which is what mm. started the Super League War, uh, where uh, uh, the ch- channel uh, Hugh Marks made comments about uh, we don't we don't buy rights off um, off the NRL, we buy them off the clubs, uh, and the NRL should be just a shell, and and basically mm. inciting the clubs to rise up at the beginning of COVID against the NRL, and as a result, uh, Todd Greenberg um, was uh, removed or, or departed. Uh, from his job as CEO at the NRL and the digital uh, arm of the uh, ARL, which was of the NARLC and the NRL, which which was its its bomb shelter from the from the collapse of pay TV rights economy, it blew up its own bomb shelter. There is now no, there's barely, there's just a token digital operation. You can't stream games on the NRL mm. site. So that so we had a period basically. I know I'm, I'm sounding a bit long winded here, Ken, no, no, we, but we had we had a period of just under a decade where the NRL. Uh, uh, built up an independence from, and that was the height of it. Was signing, with, you know, um, a contract with Channel Nine uh, while Rupert Mur- when Rupert Murdoch arrived, and 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 the you know all that sort of stuff. We are now back to the point we were before the war, where uh, the ARL is completely beholden. Sorry, the NRL <laughs> and the NRL is completely beholden. To its uh, to its rights partners, which are Nine and Fox, and it, it it's actually at their behest, uh, it has destroyed its own escape route from that uh, from that relationship. Um, so um, yeah, things things tend to go in cycles. It's so similar. It took you back to the ARL just talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess like you know we've talked about how important a News Corp has been to the NRL over the years. What about the other way around? How important is the NRL to News Corp and, you know, as you mentioned, their tabloids and to, I guess, the premise of pay television? Well, um, you know, the, the big thing that people outside, the people who follow rugby league and follow the war would be aware of, but maybe others aren't, is that at the, when South Sydney, South Sydney were a victim of uh, rationalisation, they were, they were broke. And even when they came back into the competition, uh, they had players picking weeds at training as part of the uh, roster system. They were so impoverished. <laughs> but, wow. but people don't know that until uh, Russell Crowe came along and, and Peter Holmes was a court. But taxi drivers would not pick up at Fox Studios uh, as a protest against News Limited um, oh. um, while South Sydney were out of the competition. And um, even in the book, uh, so even in sort of mid-1997, uh, John Hardigan, um, um, the CEO at News, actually addressed all the clubs and said, "We're going to give you equal uh, coverage um, of the, at the ARL." He went to the ARL clubs. We're going to give you equal coverage. We're not going to be biased towards our own competition because, frankly, News's readers didn't have vision. <laughs> they weren't interested in, uh, in in rugby league going to uh, uh, Shanghai. Um, they they wanted to follow East, South, West, and North. Mm. Um, so so the the wall really hurt um, News Limited standing in Sydney, uh, and and the end of the war. Um, the reason that the news were able to negotiate with a much uh, uh, worse resourced rival and come up with a s- somewhat equitable solution was the fact that the public uprising against uh, what what Super League had done uh, uh, to the game. Hello? 
that sorry, just cut out for a second. Um, that that that's fascinating, Steve. So I guess finally, let's look forward. I mean, you know, we've got um the introduction of of digital uh, platforms that mean that you know Foxtel isn't necessarily needed anymore. Obviously, uh, news has its its KO as well. Uh, sports leagues like rugby, uh, like the NRL, like all the ones around the world, are now thinking, well, there's all these new partners who they can potentially. Uh, a kind of, um, you know, uh, par- I mean, partner with and and sell their games and, you know, to connect with their viewers. In fact, they can even do it directly, hypothetically. Where do you see this relationship going in the future? Um, not as far as it should. And one of the reasons for that is um, is, is personality-driven. Uh, Pete, um, uh, Peter Volandis, uh, who is the CEO, uh, sorry, the chairman of the uh, ARLC and the NRL, has always had an extremely tight uh, um, relationship with news. Um, and, um, you know, news and Channel 9 never liked NRL.com and Peter Volandis uh, blew it up. Um, mm-hmm. So, and, and a lot of people in Sydney who are closer to things than, than I am think that Peter Volandis gets a pretty good run uh, as far as um, uh, criticism is concerned in in, in, the po- in popular press in Sydney. Funny uh, how that and works. Of, and of course, and 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 let's not forget, he's also in charge of Racing New South Wales, mm-hmm. uh, who pay uh, for these uh, supplements uh, in um, in in print media at a time when print media advertising is is, is in freefall. Um, so um, the the, uh, the the print the print the, so the same organisations uh, that that rely on Racing New South Wales. Uh, for income for their print products are also the rights holders for the NRL's um, 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 television. So as a result of that, I, as a as a f- fan of the NRL, uh, I'm not um, particularly confident in their uh, uh, independence and ability to make the most of these new opportunities in the digital space. Not at all. Um, I, I believe that um, um, that that Channel Nine has one of the NRL's balls and uh, and uh, News Limited has the other. <laughs> uh, well, with that uh, stunning visual, I think we, we might call it. Um, Steve, thank you very much. It was super fascinating to hear about it. And, you know, I think you really do see, uh, you know, how it does show you a couple of the tactics that come up from News Corp again and again, how they know how to use their market power. Um, but how, you know, at the end of the day, they, are, they also are um, beholden to their audience. Uh, and I think sometimes people forget that as well. Uh, Steve, if people want to buy your book, is there is there a preferred place and there's, is there somewhere to, to follow you online as well? There is. Before we go, I think I think I should add also that news, um, I think news do have always liked rugby league and I think rugby league actually suits that co- kind of corporate cowboy Sydney culture. Uh, but in, 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 in keeping with many of the ways um, news interacts with various things. Um, it's it's been chaotic over the years, and it's been kind of at times walking around in the dark. But it's also been uh, a, a absolute um, uh, lack of reluctance to use a, a, that uh, corporate muscle when they wanted to and needed to. Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, uh, the book is available um, at stevemascot.com forward slash product forward slash two tribes. If you're listening in Australia, uh, Cam, uh, maybe I'll make the discount code Cam. Uh, <laughs> so, um, uh, and you get uh, you'll get two dollars fifty off. And if you're listening overseas, it's shop.stevemascord.com forward slash product forward slash two tribes. Same discount code, uh, and uh, it's one pound ninety nine off. And I'm sure mm. that if you've got show notes, um, 
uh, maybe you could throw those addresses in there. But uh, I I appreciate your time and I appreciate everyone's interest in the book so far. Same here. Thank you so much, Steve. Talk to you later. Good on you, mate. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, please be subscribed. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or just about everywhere you get podcasts. Um, And also, please join our podcast group on Facebook at Murdocracy Podcast and our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Murdocracy, to help support this podcast. I've said the word podcast too many times. (laughs) Thank you so much to Kevin McLeod for the theme music, the ABC for the recordings from the archive, and Ruby Innes for our artwork. And of course, thank you as always to you, Cam. Thank you, Sammy. See you guys next week. Bye. All right.